Hello. Good evening. So welcome to Goucher College. We're really pleased to see you all here. Um, I'm Nancy Magnuson, college librarian with welcome from the Friends of the Goucher College Library. I'm Rabbi Josh Snyder. I'm the executive director at Goucher College Hillel. So the Friends have been providing programming, support, and advocacy for the library since 1949. Uh, Goucher College Hillel provides uh, many opportunities for Jewish students and many students to engage in uh, meaningful experiences on campus, including Jewish, celebrating Jewish holidays. We're just at the end of the Jewish holiday of Purim tonight, so happy Purim, everybody. Uh, I hope that we've got you, you got your fill of hamantash and we've got cookies tonight. I hope that'll be all right. Um, and um, we are just so proud to be here sponsoring this event, co-sponsoring this event with the Friends of the Library tonight. Okay, and the Friends of the Library is very happy to be working with Hillel. And especially since we have a speaker with roots really in both of our organizations. So here to introduce tonight's speaker, we have one of her Goucher professors, Jean Harvey Baker. Good evening. Good evening. My name is Jean Baker, and it's my honor to introduce Marlene, who I must say is now a distinguished author <laughs> and who will be reading from her biography of uh, Bessie Margolin tonight and answering questions. And I think she also will be available to sign some books. I think we can arrange that, Jean. Uh, okay. <laughs> but first, an introduction. Uh, sometimes it seems to me that biographers and their subjects have a, a, a certain empathy and a certain sort of sympathetic relationship, which always redounds to the advantage of readers. And so it is with Marlene Tressman and Bessie Margolin. I think those are hard names to keep saying. <laughs> They're both distinguished alumni of the New Orleans Jewish Orphans Home, as well as the Isidore Newman School. Their careers uh, varied in terms of geography. As we know, Marlene came to our beloved Goucher College, where she was a star student. She went on to law school and earned a JD from George Washington Law School later an MBA from Loyola. What impresses me is that like Margolin, the subject of this biography, she entered public service as a special assistant uh, to the Maryland Attorney General. She was active in a variety of, compa of capacities. She litigated, she worked as a mentor for other attorneys, she developed enforcement programs, and uh, this may give everyone an idea of age, which were introducing efforts, uh, anti-tobacco efforts. She also worked in a variety of ways to try to reform uh, some of Maryland's ill-conceived programs for the developmentally disabled. But like the subject of this biography, she has also been involved in volunteer work in various private organizations, including her alma mater, Goucher, which has benefited a great deal uh, from her service in many capacities, including that of being a trustee. And she has supported various Jewish uh, organizations. Now it seems to me that she is preparing a great service, a great payback. She is embarking, and I suppose well into, uh, a history of the New Orleans Jewish Orphans Home. And she's beginning in this uh, new book that she's working on to tell its story. So uh, here is an author who has much in common uh, with the subject of her biography and who has been able, through terrific research, uh, 
good writing, excellent conceptualization to tell the story of a woman that many of us would never have known about without your work, Marlene. Thank you, Jean. That was lovely. Not, not as good as you. Oh. you. I'm so excited to be here tonight and to have all of you here. This is the first Baltimore event for Fair Labor Lawyer, and I'm especially pleased that it's here at Goucher, to which I'm indebted for many things. First, I came here on almost complete full scholarship, and when I left Goucher, it sent me off with a handsome fellowship to attend law school, the Eleanor Voss Fellowship. But beyond that, one of the things that's very special to me is this is the only place where I can speak about my first book and already have one of my written works on the library shelves. <laughs> and that's my senior honors thesis, which I have always been very proud, has a home in Goucher's library. I realized that in writing that thesis, and I'm very sorry that Professor Marianne Givens couldn't be here with us tonight. Um, she's, she's ill and not feeling well. Um, but she was one of my thesis advisors. And I realized that the work I did in writing my senior honors thesis was probably the single most relevant work I had done to write this biography. I had to conceptualize an, a new idea of research, a new plan. It was cross-disciplinary because I was seeking a major in both pre-legal studies and Spanish. I had to do interviews, or I chose to do interviews and travel to DC to find people in Congress who were experts in Hispanic Americans and their involvement in American life and the writing and carrying out a totally self-initiated project over my senior year. So I'm indebted in ways to Goucher for this book that I really hadn't crystallized till now. The other thing is, where else could I have gone that when I began to think about writing the biography of, to be generous, a lesser known figure, I had at my disposal two amazing, renowned author historians. Jean Harvey Baker was from the beginning available to me for coffee, for mentoring, to share with me her wisdom, her insight, her experience. And in addition, another Goucher alumna, um, Columbia University's Alice Kessler Harris, another renowned historian, was equally generous with her time. So Goucher, while I was here, when I left, and in writing this book, I'm just thrilled and indebted. So with that, we'll talk about Bessie. Through a life that spanned the 20th century, Bessie Margolin contributed to three major episodes in modern American history. She defended the constitutionality of the New Deal's Tennessee Valley Authority. She drafted the rules for the Nazi war crimes trials in Nuremberg. And for more than three decades, she championed the Fair Labor Standards Act, ultimately including the Equal Pay Act. Entrusted with the U.S. Labor Department's appellate litigation, Margolin presented 24 arguments at the Supreme Court, one of only three women in the entire 20th century to do so, and she prevailed in 21 of them. For 20 years, Solicitors General assigned those Supreme Court arguments to her, and she was the last Labor Department lawyer to receive that distinction. Bessie began her legal career in 1930 when only 2% of America's lawyers were women. She served in the federal government under six presidents, from Franklin Roosevelt to Nixon, and nine labor secretaries, beginning with Frances Perkins. She received every award the department offered and by 1963 was promoted to associate solicitor, the department's top non-political legal position. After retiring in 1972, however, Margolin seemed to disappear from the public record. 
It's not hard to understand why she deserves to be rescued from obscurity, but I'd like to explain how I came to the task. In the fall of 1974, I was a freshman here at Goucher College, far from my home in New Orleans. My high school guidance counselor had written Margolin, a distinguished alumna from the Isidore Newman class of 1925, the letter of introduction shown here. Through college, law school, and into my legal career, I got to know Bessie Margolin. She was the first female lawyer I ever met, and we were connected by common childhood experiences. Bessie and I were both wards of a Southern Jewish Children's Welfare Agency. She, the Jewish Orphan's Home, and I was a ward of its successor, the Jewish Children's Regional Service, which educated both of us at Newman School 50 years apart. Bessie Margolin personified excellence in the law and in public service at a time when women were prevented, if not outright discouraged, discouraged if not outright prevented, from pursuing opportunities available to men. While protecting the rights of millions of American workers, she also advanced the careers of countless government lawyers and employees, many of whom sought out her prestigious and demanding tutelage. The late Simon Soboloff, chief judge of both Maryland's Court of Appeals and the Fourth Circuit, and a former solicitor general, offered only two suggestions for lawyers seeking a federal appellate practice. They should either work in the office of the Solicitor General or they should work in the office of Bessie Margolin. I'd like to share her journey from beneficiary of social justice to powerful advocate. Bessie was born in 1909 in Brooklyn, New York, the first American-born child of Russian Jewish immigrants. From there, to escape New York's tough and crowded conditions, Bessie's family made its way to Memphis, Tennessee. About a year after giving birth to a third child, Bessie's mother died, leaving Bessie's father alone to care for three very small children. The Margolin's plight attracted the attention of a Memphis rabbi who petitioned the Jewish Orphan's Home in New Orleans to accept the children as half-orphans. In 1913, the orphanage admitted Bessie at age four and her siblings, proclaimed a magnificent monument to Hebrew benevolence. The home, as it was known, sat prominently just two blocks um, away from, uh, on St. Charles Avenue, near the stately mansions of New Orleans' most prosperous citizens. It was both a stunning contrast to the humble origins of its young residents and an inspiring symbol of what each of them could and many of them did achieve. In the home, Bessie grew up with more than 150 other orphans and half-orphans from throughout the Deep South. Its trustees were not content to provide them with mere subsistence. Instead, the home groomed Bessie as an all-American girl who shed honor on the local Jewish community and reflected the values and culture of her prosperous benefactors. In addition to a religious education in Reform Judaism, the home provided Bessie a robust secular education at the Isidore Newman Manual Training School, where the cutting-edge curriculum emphasized manual skills in home economics and woodworking, as well as rigorous academics. The home built this unique school to educate its wards, but also admitted New Orleans children of all religions whose parents paid tuition. Newman quickly became what it still remains today, one of the South's and indeed the nation's finest college prep schools. Bessie excelled in every subject. She graduated from Newman in 1925 as a 16-year-old leader who was comfortable in a co-ed setting, competing, succeeding, and winning respect. Besides leading the debate club and the girls' student council, Bessie was valedictorian and won a coveted scholarship to Newcomb College, the coordinate college for women at Tulane University. 
Bessie spent two years at Newcomb and ranked among the top 10 in her class, but she wanted more. <clears throat> she decided to attend law school, something no other girl from the home had ever done. As Tulane's law, as Tulane Law School's only woman at the time, Bessie said she felt isolated and self-conscious, but she and her male classmates soon adjusted to each other. When a professor assigned a case involving an accident in a men's bathroom, no one wanted to recite the facts of the case because they were embarrassed to use the word toilet in mixed company. When one poor fellow finally blurted out washroom, they all sighed and laughed with relief. In June 1930, at age 21, Bessie completed her liberal arts and law studies with honors in only five years. She graduated second in her law school class and was civil law editor of the Tulane Law Review. Tulane Law School's Dean Rufus Harris urged Yale Law School's Dean Charles Clark to hire Bessie or award her a fellowship for graduate legal studies. Clark found Bessie worthy of a job, but he refused to consider her for a fellowship because he didn't want to encourage her to pursue a career teaching law that simply didn't exist for a woman. Harris assured Clark that Bessie was, in his words, a level-headed girl who knew some things in this world must be taken as they are. With her fate determined by the two male deans, Bessie accepted a research position with Yale Law professor Ernest Lorenzen, an expert in comparative law and conflicts. In New Haven, Bessie impressed both Lorenzen and a wildly popular young faculty member, William O. Douglas. With their help, Bessie overcame Dean Clark's earlier opposition and became the first woman awarded Yale Sterling Fellowship for graduate studies. With her Yale doctorate, Bessie moved to Washington for a new opportunity. She applied for a job at the Tennessee Valley Authority, which Congress had just created to realize Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal vision of supplying electricity to the Valley's impoverished residents. Professor Lorenzen wrote what TVA apparently needed to hear to hire a woman lawyer. It's first. Oops. <clears throat> that Bessie was intent on a legal career, quote, as a primary objective from which she would not be deflected by consideration of marriage, end quote. Bessie thus began her federal government career with a pledge <clears throat> that she would be married to her job instead of a man. Fearing TVA's competition, private utilities hurled charges of socialism that quickly turned into lawsuits. To direct the legal defense of this New Deal cornerstone, TVA hired James Lawrence Fly, a Harvard Law graduate and experienced trial lawyer from the Justice Department. Fly made Bessie a key member of TVA's brilliant legal team two landmark cases that established the legality of TVA's power program, Ashwander, and later the Tennessee Electric Power Company, overshadowed all of TVA's legal work, and Bessie researched, prepared witnesses, and materially shaped the briefs in both cases. In other TVA work, she negotiated contracts and got courtroom experience in condemnation cases, despite strong resistance to a woman lawyer from local attorneys, judges, and even witnesses. How did she feel about her profession? In 1938, she shared her thoughts in the magazine published by her college sorority. Law is still too greatly restricted for women with considerable prejudice against them, she wrote, and offered this no-nonsense advice. A woman attorney must manage to be accepted and treated as another man and must be willing to take responsibility, criticism, and hard work in the same spirit as do the men attorneys. She must aim to become one of the men without, however, becoming masculine or overly aggressive in her approach. Bessie practiced what she preached throughout her career.
In March 1939, Bessie joined the Labor Department where another New Deal program awaited enforcement. The Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 invoked federal commerce powers to prohibit child labor and to guarantee minimum wages and a 40-hour workweek. Bessie was there as every aspect of the new law was being tested. Her first week, she traveled home to New Orleans, where she won a motion to quash a subpoena. By year's end, she returned several more times on FLSA matters, including the Fifth Circuit's disposition of a Supreme Court-bound lawsuit that challenged the minimum wage for textile workers, then 32.5 cents an hour. The New Orleans press loved Bessie's local girl makes good story. One full-length photo, shown here, captured Bessie in a pose more cheesecake than lawyerly. Why wasn't she married, the press wanted to know. The reporter recounted Bessie's coy response this way. I haven't had time for love. Then she smiled. But I'm not immune. I'm just uncontaminated. Dr. Margolin brushed back a lock of soft black hair. So far, she added. Bessie's remarks merit several notes. First, it was witty, like a line ripped from a Katherine Hepburn movie, revealing Bessie's passion for wordsmithery. Second, she seemed neither defensive nor self-conscious about being single. And third, it just wasn't true. I'm going to digress to discuss a topic I'm invariably asked about, and that's Bessie's personal life. That it doesn't fit neatly within her career history illustrates the challenges she faced as an ambitious professional woman of her time. During law school, Bessie was engaged to her classmate Bob Butler. She broke it off in late 1933, surprising no one who knew her. Little did Bob realize that his dream of marrying Bessie was doomed from the start. When he thoughtfully gave her a book inscribed, to my sweetheart Bess, she inscribed the margins and blank pages of the very same book with extensive passages from Virginia Woolf's recent feminist essay, A Room of One's Own, extolling the importance of women having space, literally and figuratively. And then there was Larry Fly, Bessie's TVA boss, who was married with two children. Their love affair was a widespread secret. That's what colleagues, Fly's wife, and even Bessie told Fly's daughter, who was writing her father's never-finished biography. Remarkably, the romance did not impair Fly's supervision of TVA's lawyers, who consistently praised Fly for running one of the best law departments inside or out of government. Nor did any colleagues claim that Fly favored Margolin at TVA with assignments or promotions that she didn't merit. The romance, however, had other consequences for Margolin and Fly, who was later appointed chair of the Federal Communications Commission. <clears throat> In 1943, Georgia Congressman Eugene Cox chaired a committee to investigate the FCC, accusing Fly and the agency of Gestapo tactics to control the media and other un-American activities. Cox's investigators scrutinized Fly's and Bessie's TVA travel vouchers, shown here, taken from a file at the National Archives, to uncover, quote, honeymoon, end quote, trips they took together at government expense and interrogated Bessie's housekeepers, landlords, and neighbors. But before Cox ever questioned Fly publicly about the affair, Congressman Sam Rayburn and Lyndon Johnson interceded. Rayburn reportedly told Cox, quote, there ain't going to be no sex in this investigation. There's too damn many of us that are vulnerable on that score, <laughs> end quote. <clears throat> Although Cox obliged, Bessie's romance with Fly kept resurfacing. In 1947, Bessie's membership in the National Lawyers Guild and other liberal groups raised a red flag, so to speak, for the Government Loyalty Board, which referred the matter to the FBI. 
Although they uncovered no evidence of disloyalty, FBI agents learned that Bessie had been Fly's mistress, which they recorded in her file. When Bessie's loyalty was again questioned in the 1950s, the charges were again dismissed, but only after the FBI revisited her file and her, quote, illicit love affair. The affair resurfaced one more time in the 1960s when President Johnson considered Bessie for a federal judgeship. Responding to a name check request, the FBI sent a memo to the White House summarizing its prior investigations, including Bessie's illicit love affair from two decades earlier. There are at least three lessons Bessie should have learned from her romance with Fly. Don't get involved with a direct report, be very discreet, and don't get involved with a married man. Well, Bessie learned two of these three lessons when she fell in love with Bob Janain, the well-respected general counsel to the Interstate Commerce Commission. He wasn't her direct report, although he was a professional colleague who argued a dozen more times at the Supreme Court than she did. And she was very discreet. Friends and family, <clears throat> excuse me, Ooh. like Marco Rubio. <laughs> she was very discreet. Friends and family were stunned when Bessie announced in 1981, after Bob's wife died, that they planned to marry. Stunned not only because Bessie and Bob were both in their 70s and everyone figured Bessie would never marry, but mostly because no one knew anything about their relationship, which had started two decades earlier. Sadly, Bob died in 1984 before they realized their plans for marriage. <clears throat> the drama of Bessie's personal life never impeded her work. In her early years at the Labor Department, she paid her dues reviewing timesheets in damp warehouses and traveling back roads to interview vegetable packers and log cutters. She organized the labor solicitor's regional offices and trained the regional attorneys. She began arguing and winning appeals in the circuit courts and started working with the solicitor general's office on cases headed for the Supreme Court. Bessie's high quality work earned her recognition. Solicitor General Charles Fahey was delighted with a Supreme Court brief she principally wrote and her help preparing him for his successful argument. When he learned that Bessie had already argued in every federal circuit in the country, he promised she could argue the next FLSA case to go to the Supreme Court. So in March 1945, as only the 25th woman ever to argue at the Supreme Court, Margolin argued Phillips v. Walling, seeking to affirm the First Circuit's decision that the act's retail establishment exemption did not include warehouse employees of an interstate grocery store chain. After what must have been a lively argument, Justice Robert Jackson marked the occasion with a thoughtful note, the first of several he wrote to Bessie over the years. I hope you were satisfied with the way the court argued your first case. In any, in any event, you have every reason to feel satisfied with the way you took care of yourself under fire. I'm sure there would be no dissent from the opinion that you should argue here often. Bessie won the case establishing that FLSA exemptions must be narrowly construed. In 1945 alone, Bessie argued four more times at the Supreme Court, prevailing in three of them. These and the rest that followed advanced the act's humanitarian purposes by extending coverage and restricting exemptions to protect wage earners to the full extent Congress intended and by securing the department's enforcement tools, such as injunctions by which to obtain back pay. When Bessie presented her fourth and fifth Supreme Court arguments, Justice Jackson was not on the bench. He was in Nuremberg as the US chief prosecutor for Nazi war crimes. 
This new and exciting legal pursuit attracted Bessie, who in May 1946 went to Nuremberg to help organize the American military tribunals. For her six-month tour of duty, the Army's commanding officer acknowledged Bessie's primary role in drafting the rules that governed the remainder of the war crimes trials of nearly 200 second-tier Nazis, including the judges, the doctors, and the industrialists. <clears throat> In December 1946, Bessie returned to the Labor Department to resume her work as assistant solicitor. By the time she retired in 1972, she had directed the preparation and review of approximately 600 Supreme Court and appellate briefs on the merits with an additional 150 or so petitions or responses to petitions for review by the Supreme Court. Most impressively, Margolin principally briefed and personally argued 177 cases in the Supreme Court and the circuit courts. Of the 150 circuit court cases she argued, she obtained favorable rulings in 114, 114 out of 150, of which only one was later reversed against the department by the Supreme Court, and it was argued by someone other than Margolin. Of the 36 cases she lost at the circuit court, the Supreme Court reversed seven in the department's favor, six of which she argued. She was no great orator. She would often edit her sentences as she spoke, but she engaged the justices who respected her meticulous preparation and encyclopedic knowledge of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And she was able to employ humor, something not often done with success at the Supreme Court. In this 1955 audio clip, you'll hear Bessie spar with Justice Felix Frankfurter in Steiner v. Mitchell, where Bessie successfully argued that battery plant workers, whose jobs involved contact with toxic chemicals, had a right to wages for the time they spent changing their clothes and showering. An issue, I might add, that is currently before the Supreme Court as we speak. Although you may not be able to make out what he's saying, you'll hear Justice Frankfurter's annoyance with Congress for imposing on the courts what he considered to be undue burdens of interpreting the act, an annoyance he frequently redirected at Bessie and which she withstood with grace under pressure. Now, I'll grant you that that uh, is not Despite the banter, they enjoyed a cordial relationship outside the courtroom. Frankfurter inscribed a copy of his book of Law and Men this way. For Bessie Margolin, who pleases me more often than I, through no fault of mine, please her. She certainly got his attention as evidenced by his notes from the bench. In one, Frankfurter referred to Bessie's deft use of her feminine charms and in another to her exploitation of her female talents. In the early 1960s, Bessie decided to pursue a federal judgeship, a campaign she waged for much of the decade. With enthusiastic supporters from Congress, the Supreme Court, and the Labor Department, Bessie's name was considered by LBJ himself. It's not clear what, if any, role her affair with Fly played in the decision, but she faced other hurdles. 
one male White House staffer criticized her fashion-forward appearance as, quote, flamboyant, and another opined, quote, that her age, 58, would tend to preclude her from consideration, end quote. By 1968, Bessie had been passed over for 15 federal judicial vacancies, all filled by men, several older than she was. The silver lining from Bessie not getting a judgeship is she remained at the Labor Department. Promoted in 1963 to associate solicitor for trial litigation and appeals, Bessie developed the strategies and personally argued the first appeals under the Equal Pay Act and the Age Discrimination in Employment Act. By the time she retired in 1972, Bessie oversaw the filing of 300 Equal Pay Act lawsuits in 40 states, ultimately recovering nearly $4 million for nearly 18,000 employees and earning the title, quote, nation's number one fighter for equal pay for women. Bessie understood that equal pay was part of a bigger blueprint for equal employment opportunities. In more than a dozen speeches to labor lawyers and corporate counsel, always men, she used her authoritative voice as a veteran of FLSA courtroom battles to explain the Equal Pay Act and the related sex discrimination provision in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. One such battle was Schultz v. Wheaton Glass Company, perhaps Margolin's most significant appellate victory, which one commentator likened to a second Brown v. Board of Education. The New Jersey trial court had ruled that male selector packers in the glass factory, which made bottles for Avon, by the way, were entitled to 10% higher pay, largely because they possessed, quote, greater flexibility to perform additional duties. Now, despite the questionable merits, the decision was feared reversal proof because of its extensive factual recitations informed by the judge's two site visits to the plant, where even one site visit is very rare. Yet Margolin convinced the Third Circuit Court of Appeals to reverse the trial court's decision and to establish that jobs need only be substantially equal, not identical, to require equal pay under the Act. The company sought review by the Supreme Court. At Bessie's gala retirement dinner, former labor solicitor Lawrence Silberman, today a senior federal judge for the D.C. Circuit, described what happened next. Oops. As I told you, the Third Circuit, after argument, was terrorized into a decision which was steadily sweeping in scope. I distinctly saw a footnote between the lines saying, we'll give you anything you want, please don't send her down again. <laughs> and counsel for the other side petitioned for certiorari. And Bessie and I discussed it. Now, you can see the light in Bessie's eyes. She had a sweeping decision in the Third Circuit. But here was an opportunity to take an equal pay case to the Supreme Court. And Bessie suggested that maybe we should not oppose cert because it would be appropriate to have the Supreme Court see this issue. Well, I didn't think there was any way in the world we were ever going to get a decision that was better than that Third Circuit decision. And I was by no means sure that the Supreme Court was going to be as terrorized as the Third Circuit. <laughs> Although there are other speakers, there's another speaker this evening that can address that point. <laughs> but I figured a way to deal with the problem. I just sort of leaned back in my chair and I said, Bessie, you know, I've never argued a case in the Supreme Court. She said, we'll post sir. <laughs> that was just one of the stories Judge Silberman shared with Margolin's more than 200 guests. Chief Justice, Chief Justice Earl Warren retired, before whom Bessie had argued more than half of her Supreme Court cases was guest speaker. Here's an excerpt of Chief Justice Warren's tribute to Bessie Margolin. That in the 33 years since 
three years of litigation representing the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Labor Department, and implementing the Fair Labor Standards Act, she didn't always have a bed of roses. I am sure the hundreds of briefs that she wrote and the scores of cases she argued, some in every one of the 11 circuits and 27 in the Supreme Court, must have raised enough hackles in some quarters to have made her look forward to the serenity of retirement. The 27 cases alone that she argued in the Supreme Court was a prodigious undertaking. The Fair Labor Standards Act was not always popular in all quarters. Still isn't. And the flesh and sinews that were developed around its bare bones were her great contribution to millions of American working people. Many of these people do not know who Bessie Marblin is or what a great service she rendered to them. But if they did know, they would praise her tonight. In their name, I would like to thank her tonight because the bare bones of that act would have been wholly inadequate without the implementation that she gave in the courtroom, she forged in the courtroom of our land. It's hard to top the Chief Justice's remarks about Bessie Margolin, so I'll offer only one concluding comment. Fair Labor Lawyer, the title of Margolin's biography, refers literally to the New Deal legislation that she shepherded through the courts. But it also refers to the fairness of Margolin's own career, the obstacles she faced as a woman, the opportunities that influential supporters afforded her, her use of her feminine charms, and her nonconformist personal life. For me, the title also represents the challenge that I've imposed on myself to do justice in telling her story. I hope I've succeeded. Thank you for your attention. I'd be happy to answer any questions about the research or the book, and uh, thank you all for being here. There we go. Here we. Paula. The only one that I could find, there were none from the orphanage, women, but there, was, there were several men from the orphanage who had gone on to law school. At Newman, however, the, the school that she attended with kids from the most prominent families in New Orleans, she did have a, um, an older classmate three years or four years before her who went on to Tulane Law School. But what I think is Bessie simply never understood that she couldn't do something if she was qualified for it. It's, it's wonderfully amazing. It's audacious. And it's a word I've come to use to describe Bessie. You've heard of the notorious RBG. And I like to consider her the audacious Bessie Margolin. Did you have a question? Yes. She had great wit. I don't know where she got that from. Because you know, being an orphanage, you don't necessarily get to be around you know, people like you would be if you were in the Catskills or something like that. Well, but you have to understand, this was a very unique orphanage. I've only given you a tiny slice. Um, the, the prosperous and largely German Reformed Jews who had made their home in New Orleans were very well off and able to care for newcomer Eastern European immigrants. The children in this orphanage, unlike the ones in New York and Cleveland and Philadelphia, where 800, 1,000 children were housed, had only 150 at its peak. These children received the finest in medical care, in, in dietary, in, in their 
diet, their clothes, and their, um, their education beginning at 1903 at the Newman School cannot be undervalued. In fact, many of these children are seen as overachievers because that's what their prosperous benefactors wanted for them, to really assimilate into and become American Jews. Don't know about the initiating. <laughs> there were no women of higher standing than Bessie who could have gone after these men as lesser. So in I, I proffer in the book that she was enthralled by having men who were her equals in intellect, who valued her intellect, and also were passionate. And you have to remember, this is long before the rules were established about sex harassment and sex discrimination. Um, but you would have thought that Bessie, who worked so hard to find her place in a man's world, would have been very cautious about risking that for fear that someone would claim she got something she didn't deserve. I believe she was so comfortable with her merits and so willing to pursue passion and not wanting to give up her independence for marriage, that she lived life on her own terms and did quite a nice job of it. Yeah, Jill. So you never mentioned anything about her dad. No, I'm happy to tell you. There were many children in this orphanage because by its terms it admitted half orphans and later also admitted generally dependent children, sometimes where both parents were alive but unable to care for them. And because many of the orphanages in New Orleans and other places were religiously based, people were very comfortable in having their children raised, especially when it was like an elite religious boarding school as it was. Harry Margolin lived, continued to live in Memphis for about eight years into his three children's time in the home. He ultimately came to New Orleans, but never got past being really an itinerant peddler. Um, and when Bessie and her si sister Dora, who went on to become a nurse, and her younger brother Jack, who went on to Dartmouth for business school after Tulane, tried to reconnect with Harry, there was such a gap in terms of what they had been shown and their education. The girls talked about with their family, they found him just incompatible. So he, he um, died, I believe, around 1940. He lived long enough to see all of his children succeed, but there was clearly a big gap between whatever family could have been. Yeah, Jane. No, I really don't. I think that so much, and in fact, book number two, thank you very much, about the children in this orphanage, there, there really was a, this investment that was made in some 1,700 children. The orphanage was founded in 1855 to deal with the aftermath of the most deadly yellow fever epidemic the nation saw. And it, it, it really outdoes Katrina in its devastation. 8,000 people died in the city of New Orleans in the summer of 1853. This orphanage was founded, and the opportunities afforded to these children, like I said, rival a re an elite religious boarding school. So in many ways, the, the, the um, children were often given far better opportunities of economic mobility by entering the orphanage than they would have otherwise gotten. And how, and, and Dr. Baker, how soon will we be hearing about your forthcoming tome? <laughs>
It's going to take a bit. Um, I, it's, um, I want to cover literally the 90 years that the orphanage was in, in existence, and that includes the Civil War, Reconstruction, World War I, uh, Depression, and World War II. So I've got my work cut out for me. But I do hope that it takes the shape of a collective biography, and I've been interviewing a lot of centenarians to um, both children of the grandchildren of the earliest residents of the home and people who lived in the homes themselves. Marilyn? Did she mentor um, women professionally? She did. And in fact, the very first woman solicitor of labor, Karen Klaus, was Bessie's star protege. And Bessie, in fact, before she left the labor department for her retirement, had really um, sort of groomed Karen to be in, in the track for that. But in addition, she was an equal opportunity perfectionist for men and women, lawyers and staff. She was relentless, but gave credit generously, took blame, She's also credited by some of her staff with creating what had never been heard of before, and that was part-time work for lawyers. One woman that I interviewed who worked for her, who had children, Bessie arranged that she could work on a part-time basis, and I think it might be among, it was certainly not something on the books at the Labor Department at the time. Yes? It's interesting because despite the fact that the children in the home were educated in Hebrew, all in Reform Judaism, but still quite pious within Reform Judaism, there was a synagogue in the home, there was weekly services, the children all learned Hebrew in addition to Sunday school, the boys, some made bar mitzvahs, the, the, all the children were confirmed. There's very little evidence that after Bessie left New Orleans, she continued in any way to observe traditional aspects of Judaism. However, what I saw was that it certainly informed her life. The speeches that she heard on social justice, which didn't use the words at the time of tikkun olam and repairing the world, were very much modeled throughout her time in the home. And that's what her life was spent doing. Also, when she went to Nuremberg, letters that she wrote both to a mentor and to a personal friend reflect without saying it, what I believe had to be the, the very intimate sense of, 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 of horror at the atrocities, knowing that she was the firstborn daughter of Russian Jews. Um, and so some of those letters, the circle of friends she kept include quite a large number of more observant Jews, including um, Morris Abram, who went on to become the president of Brandeis University and the president of the American Jewish Congress, uh, someone she met at Nuremberg. Um, and she had quite a large circle of friends. I think that devout observance of Judaism was simply one more burden that would have kept her from practicing law. Others did it, but I think Bessie, given her upward mobility within New Orleans, where one, where, where people of religions could actually navigate quite easily, once she left New Orleans, I don't think she had the same structures in place to make practicing Judaism very easy. Yes? No, no, no. The orphanage was solely an orphanage. The school, Isidore Newman, was physically separate by design so that these children, when they walked two blocks from the intersection of St. Charles Avenue, beautiful St. Charles Avenue, to the Newman School, where it still remains today, they went and were educated side by side with children of the wealthiest families who could pay tuition. So it, the, all of the children at the home went to Newman for the earliest grades. However, by sixth or seventh grade, those who were not academically inclined or those who wanted to pursue a trade were, were put on different paths outside of Newman. So for example, even though Bessie's kindergarten was probably half kids from the home and half tuition paying kids, 
her senior class in 1925, she was one of only four out of 31 who were home kids. But you have to remember, out of 150, there would have only been seven to 10 in her age cohort anyway. So there's a number, a lot of numbers at play. Yes? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I would hope, we all hope. Um, the, the question is, do I have any comment on the sexist nature of the, the comments made by Justice Frankfurter in his notes in particular, uh, because Justice Jackson's were actually quite, um, you know, above board. Um, it was very common. Bessie probably never saw those notes, but my guess is she heard even, she heard things, those, that was benign. She knew Frankfurter liked her, to tell you the truth. But she was very sensitive to criticism from other lawyers, especially among the elite Supreme Court bar. There were lawyers who would actually say to her, with disdain that her practice at the Supreme Court, her cases were all involving the Fair Labor Standards Act, meaning they were all about statutory interpretation, not heady, sexy issues of constitutional proportions, that somehow her cases were of lesser moment or easier. Justice uh, Judge Charles Fahey, who went on to become a, a D.C. Circuit judge after he was Solicitor General, heard her remark this, and he said, I lost an FLSA case. No one should be claiming that they're any easier. And as I think you would probably rightly imagine, there are no easy cases at the Supreme Court. But what's that? They, they don't take that. Maybe That's right. Thank you, Judge Hollander. Exactly. So to your point, she, from everything that I've learned about her, she exuded grace under pressure. She simply would turn if there was something that I think would have offended her because it, she was just above it. Um, at one conference when she spoke, and this is in the book, it was, a, um, it was a bar association, meaning lawyers, and they wanted her to speak in about 1966-67. She was the preeminent expert on the Equal Pay Act. They wanted her to address and wrote in a letter the issue of Amazons and tail wagging the dog. For example, where there's one man working with hundreds of women based on the employment. And so the Amazon reference, I can only imagine it wasn't explained, was a reference to mythical and large women of, of extreme power and uh, other things. So when Bessie, she didn't flinch, when she accepted this, and the, the, even though she wrote back, I think with some comment about the categories, she said in her remarks to a couple hundred corporate counsel that unfortunately the time had not yet come for there to be humor made of the importance of women's equal pay, both you know in in our society. And she said that um, there had wasn't, and that the and that the labor department had no sense of humor when it came to that issue. So she, I think, had the sweetest revenge, which was in the courtroom and in seeing the law well enforced. Anything else? Yes. Yes. Could you tell us who Malcolm Triton? Yes, Bessie never married, had no children. Yes, her two siblings, her sister Dora, um, who came back incidentally and worked as a nurse in the home, married Dr. Harry Trifon, a medical student who often was a tutor in the orphanage in New Orleans. <clears throat> they had three sons, Malcolm, who went to GW Law School and heard his aunt argue her last argument took her papers, I tracked him down, and he um, has graciously allowed me to use them, and he also graciously will be donating them to Tulane's special collections, which is really wonderful. Thank you, yes, one more. They did. In fact, the, it, the home built the school. And until the home closed in 1946, the home had a committee that oversaw the school. 
When the orphanage closed in 1946, largely because of the advent of Social Security so that single parents could support their children, as well as the general development of non-institutionalization of children wherever possible, um, when the home closed, the home sold the property to Newman School, which became independently chartered. But I'd just like to add on a personal note that when my position, when, when I came along in the 60s, two decades later, and both of my parents had died, the orphanage petitioned Newman to honor its original founding charter to educate Jewish orphans, and it admitted me on full scholarship. So I think I'm the most recent full orphan to have been educated at the Isidore Newman School, and I'm very grateful for that. Thank you very much. <laughs>